0: Going to read through the end of the chapter. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are on their, the, the, the first missionary journey, and we've already seen them stop in a couple of places, particularly Cyprus, last week, and today we're pressing on. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David After me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death... They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers... This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, Fell asleep, and was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading and hearing of His holy word to us this morning. Well, Paul and Barnabas uh, are traveling along from the island of Cyprus, uh, northwest. You know, Cyprus sits in the uh, northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they traveled northwest from Cyprus to the mainland of what is today Turkey. So just to put it in, there's lots of names there, and uh, we won't have to point them out on a map, but he's in modern-day Turkey, and from the city of Perga, which is just off the south coast, they traveled inland, north, uh, to a town called Pisidian Antioch, and this is a different Antioch than the one from which they came. They left Syrian Antioch, which is uh, over in the district of Syria, north of Israel, and now they are on into, into uh, Turkey, into the Antioch that is in the district of Pisidia. Now, when Alexander the Great died, he divided, they divided his kingdom into four, with, uh, into four parts uh, and gave each part to one general. One of the generals was Seleucus. His father was Antiochus, and when Seleucus was uh, ruling, he built about 60 cities, and he named like 16 of them for his father. And so that's why you have so many Antiochs around. Uh, He was uh, naming everything for his dad. I guess he liked his dad a lot. But it's not Father's Day, so we're not going to talk about that. It's Mother's Day. Uh, The custom of Paul and Barnabas at this point in their journeys was to attend the synagogues wherever they traveled, and on this occasion they were given the opportunity to address the assembly. Now, I want you to think about the importance of this. You know, they're they're traveling along, they're in foreign lands, and here they have the opportunity to speak. Their sole purpose for going out was to tell people about Jesus. So what do you think Paul's going to stand up and talk about? He's going to talk about the most important thing. He's going to talk about the thing that he's there to discuss with him, and that is Jesus. He's going to share what is of vital importance, and he's going to do it to the best of his ability. So we can be assured that what we have before us is Paul's best shot. This is the most important message. It is the message that we must grasp. So it So it is very important for us to take a few moments this morning and to look at what Paul says because this really is the essence of the message that he went around preaching and that changed people's lives. And if we want our lives to be changed today, this is the message that we need to understand and grasp. First, I want to talk about the content of it, and then I want to talk about the appropriate response to it. So this good news, the gospel, that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. We see here that Paul, as we think about from verses 16 down to verse 39, uh, Paul is giving the people some news. He's recounting some past history, the history of Israel. He starts from the children of Jacob settling in Egypt uh, during the time uh, of Joseph and he he travels on through the Exodus rather quickly, from the Exodus from Egypt, and he goes into the the conquest of the promised land, and then as they settled there, you had that 200-year period of the judges, and then it goes to the monarchy under King Saul when they asked for a king finally, and then from Saul to David, the man after God's heart, whom God promised that the throne of his kingdom would last forever. So... A few brief sentences, Paul covers 700 years of the history of Israel. And he gets to David. And that's where he brings Jesus into the picture. Paul identifies Jesus as the promised Savior who fulfills the covenant promises made to King David. He's the promised one for whom uh, the the, uh, Jews had been waiting. they have been looking for the Messiah for centuries. And so Paul is standing up there amongst these people who were Jewish or converts to Judaism. That's what's meant by those who fear God, God God-fearers. And he says, Jesus is the one you're looking for. And then he relates uh, the history of John the Baptist as a testimony, as a witness to Jesus. He came along, he was the latest of the prophets, and he prepared the way for the arrival of Jesus, and he testified concerning Jesus' divinity. You know, I'm not worthy to tie his shoes, uh, John said. And he pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So a lot of people would have remembered John the Baptist. Then he relates the history of Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, relating that though Jesus was blameless, his death was according to the plan of God, according to what was promised by God through the prophets. And his resurrection was also promised in the Psalms. So all of this is according according to God's foreknowledge and plan. And it's been witnessed by many people, he notes. Now through all this recounting of history, Paul is showing that Jesus' death and resurrection is actually the culmination of human history according to God's plan. It's the high point in history. It's the most important thing that has ever happened on the face of the earth. So that's what Paul says. He basically gives them uh, a history lesson. He tells them, some events that have happened in the past from the history of Israel, which pertains to the crowd that he was talking to, on up to Jesus and what Jesus, who he was and and what he actually did. And that, my friends, is the gospel. And what we need to understand about the gospel is that it is news. It is not instruction. I know I've told you that many times in the past, but it bears repeating because it's of utmost importance that we understand it that way. The gospel is news, it's not instruction. Many people in our day believe that Christianity is like all the other religions in the world, that it is primarily a code that one follows, a list of rules that you follow in order to get to heaven. On the contrary, Christianity is about what Jesus came and did and how he through what he did, is providing a way for us to get to heaven. He himself did it. It's not something that we do. So Paul is giving us a report about what Jesus has already accomplished for us. It's news. Paul's sermon demonstrates this about the gospel. You'll notice that nowhere in this sermon that does, does Paul mention anything about the teaching of Jesus. He doesn't tell uh, any of the teachings Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he doesn't tell uh, anything of what Jesus said. He doesn't even mention that Jesus was a teacher. He tells us who Jesus is and what he did. He is the blameless, promised Savior who died and rose again to provide forgiveness and justification for sinners. The gospel is a report of these actions. The focus is on Christ, his person, life, death, and resurrection. So the heart of the gospel message is not that a teacher has come to show us how to save ourselves, but that a Savior has come to die and be raised to save us, himself. It's all about what Jesus did for us, not about what we do. You'll notice what Paul says in verse 38 through 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Notice that it's through him and by him that forgiveness and freedom are provided for us. Through and by what he did in time and space. The work has already been accomplished by him and through him, and that's why it's news. Paul's a reporter, and he's recounting the events, and this makes it news. Now, the difference between good news and bad news is how it affects people, of course. We have students in our congregation who go to Biloxi High, and we have some who go to Ocean Springs High School. And when they play in sports, uh, obviously one team wins and the other team loses. And the news of the game is good news for one group of people and bad news for the other group of people. Each group is affected by the results in different ways. I think, uh, I think Ocean Springs has heard more good news this year than Biloxi has. Well, the news about Jesus is always good news because of the results of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. Paul tells us that through what he did in his life and death and resurrection, two things become possible for human beings. Two great things. Number one, forgiveness of sins. And number two, freedom from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Let's let's break this down for a minute. By addressing these two things in this setting to this people with these words, Paul is saying that the biggest problem any of us, any of his hearers, any of us here today, the biggest problem that we have is sin. It's not oppression, it's not poverty, it's not sickness, it's not injustice, nor is it anything else you could imagine. All these and every problem you can list has as its root cause sin. Now that's not a popular statement, Today, because when you say it's sin, that's finger-pointing, that's personal, and it's not very nice to say that people are sinners. Nobody likes it. And our tendency is to shift blame from ourselves, to blame someone else for our problems. It was my upbringing. Uh, It was my parents' fault. Or we blame nature. I I was just born this way. I have these tendencies in this direction or that direction. Well, I'll tell you, we're all born this way. We're all born with a sin nature. And we all have certain tendencies towards particular sins. This is called a sin nature. And we all had parents who had a sin nature, so they were sinners too. And they're not perfect. The London Times back in about 1910 or so, ran an article that posed the question, what is wrong in the world? Uh, What is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, an author and thinker at that time in England, he wrote back to the paper with a letter, and he said, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World?, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He got it. He recognized that the problem with the world is sin, and he's a sinner. And everybody could have written that letter because we're all sinners. See, your sin is your problem. All mankind is guilty through Adam. You're guilty because of the sins that flow from the nature you inherited from Adam. It's called original sin. We have this bent in our hearts a sin problem. And you cannot address that problem yourself. You need God to address your sin problem. You do not have the ability to solve that problem or to even address it. You need forgiveness. And through what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, forgiveness is an option for you. Without Jesus, it's not an option. Trying to be good and make up the wrong you have done will not work. That's what he means when he writes, by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The word free here is the word justified in the Greek or declared righteous. The law cannot make you right with God. You cannot follow a list of rules and be made right with God. The law cannot confer forgiveness of sins and declare a person in correct standing with the God of this universe. It can only be done by a perfect person outside of yourself enduring the punishment and death for your sins in your place. That person is Jesus. He's the one who did that. And through Jesus only can you be justified and forgiven and that's good news this is the good news or gospel as we call it the question is how do you respond to that news that Jesus has done this thing that he died for sin and he's risen for our justification let's look at the response that, that we have here news always calls for a reaction sometimes our reaction is indifference you know it doesn't matter to us a lot of the news that we hear because we're so we have so much information bombarding us with all the 24/7 news channels and and Twitter and all the other social media outlets that give us moment by moment news as it happens but sometimes news calls for a reaction there's a hurricane off the coast that might call for a reaction from us here in Biloxi we might need to evacuate we hear the news we respond well This news about Jesus requires a response, and there are two options given to us here in this passage. First, to believe. We see it in verse 38. In verse 41, verse 48, uh, these verses mention that belief is important. The appropriate response, and the one to which Paul and Barnabas are pressing their audience, is belief, to to, uh, have faith. But what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? Now, Christian thinkers throughout the ages have distinguished three main elements, three main elements that together comprise saving faith, biblical faith. Those three elements are knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Look at these real quick, and it makes perfect sense when we break it down. Uh, first element, knowledge. That's the idea that genuine faith must believe something. In other words, it must have an intellectual content. It can't be empty or blind, but it must be based upon the knowledge of certain fundamental truths. You wouldn't go up to a perfect stranger on the street and, and ask him to for, perform open-heart surgery upon you. That would be foolish. That's blind faith. And that is not what we're talking about here when we talk about Christian faith. But there's there's got to be knowledge. You have to have some understanding of the facts. Now, the second element is assent. Now, this refers to the intellectual conviction that the knowledge one possesses is factually true and personally beneficial. It's not enough simply to know certain things. We must also believe that those things are true, pertain to us, and actually meet our needs. For example, we... Go to a heart surgeon because we know he has a degree from a medical school. We can see his diplomas hanging on the wall. We know that there are other people who also go to this heart surgeon. It's been recommended to us. So he's treated other patients and, and he's able to talk knowledgeably about these things and he's telling us that we need heart surgery. He's diagnosed us with something that, that needs to be fixed in our hearts. That's a scent. We're not just pulling somebody off the street to do heart surgery for us, but we are doing that based on knowledge. Now that brings us to the third element, which is trust, which is where many people get hung up. It's one thing to believe the heart surgeon is capable to fix your heart problems, but it's quite another thing to crawl up on that table and place your heart in his hands, your very life in his hands. See, In in Christianity, trust means a personal trust in Christ as he is offered in the gospel and a complete reliance upon him for salvation. The Bible talks about believing in Christ, upon Christ, believing into Christ, or leaning upon him, resting upon him, looking to him, committing ourselves to him. We're giving our lives to Jesus. And this is where the demons get hung up. Yes, they know who He is. They assent to the facts that He is the Son of God. They know it. They knew it before a lot of the people that Jesus was preaching to knew it. They knew it. They knew what He had come to do. They knew a lot about Christ. But that did not cause them to turn to Christ. They did not turn from evil and commit themselves to Jesus. So see, their, their faith was... It was just an assent. Uh, They knew the facts, but there was no trust. Therefore, it was not biblical faith. True faith puts your life in Jesus' hands. You are His. You are at His disposal. And this also means turning from sin because you cannot be committed to Jesus and sin at the same time. Just the same way you cannot travel east and west at the same time. If you're going east, you're not going west. If you're following Christ, you're not following sin. You can't do both. So belief is putting your life in his hands and following him and committing yourself to him. And he is the perfect heart surgeon who will solve the worst problem you have in your heart, which is sin. Now the second and final thing, uh, the other response, the second response that we have is to scoff. You see this in verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about, uh, Paul tells the the crowd. And he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. The word scoff there means to despise or treat with contempt. Now you can do that openly and violently, you can say, I hate Christ, I hate Christians. And, and you can uh, march, you can, you can chop their heads off, as some people do. Uh, you can uh, persecute them openly, as was done here at the end of our chapter. You can contradict the message of Christ. You can do that openly, but you can also despise something through indifference. And that makes you just as much a scoffer and despiser as the person who persecutes Christians. Now, today is Mother's Day. To not do something special for your mother today is to despise her through indifference. You know, if you just don't care about your mother, you're not going to give her a card or take her to lunch or cook breakfast for her because you despise her. You don't care. To ignore Jesus and to ignore what he's done for human beings is to scoff at and despise Him. For all that He has done to become a man and suffer and die on the cross, it is contemptible to not deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. In fact, that's the least you can do for all that He's done for human beings, sinful human beings like you and I. What is your response to the gospel today? Will you put your trust in Christ? Will you turn away from sin and put your faith in Him to save it? Will you say, I can't do it myself. My works aren't good enough and I need someone to do it for me. The good news is that Christ has done that. Put your trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to not be indifferent to the gospel no one here is is, uh, seems to be scoffers or else they probably wouldn't be here in church but lord there are people here today who are indifferent to christianity and we pray lord that you would stir their hearts as they hear about what you've done about who you are that you are god and you became uh, you took on human flesh and, and you bore the wrath for sin on the cross and you rose on the third day Lord, we pray that that message, that what you have done for us, would penetrate into our hearts and warm our hearts and that we would embrace you in faith and that we would in turn be your disciples. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.